The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Oh, how terrible these words, that it's possible for a man to be cast forth as a branch. How solemn are such words. In the light of our text that we are joined to Christ in order that we might bring forth fruit unto God, how terrible to contemplate the possibility of failing to abide in Him, of being cast forth as a branch, of being barren and unfruitful, of being ashamed before him at his coming, of being saved yet so as by fire. May God give us grace to examine our hearts today. Are we without fruit? Are we withered? Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach, which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Fruit Unto God. Have you ever walked through a vineyard, an orange grove, or a field of strawberries when the fruit is ripe and ready to harvest? The sweet aroma fills the air, and all around you there's an abundance of beautiful, delicious fruit ready to be picked and enjoyed. The Lord takes delight in seeing His people bear lasting fruit as they live for Christ. Our lives should be a pleasing aroma to God as we bear spiritual fruit that brings joy to Him. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 7 and verse 4. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Fruit Unto God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. Once more we delight to praise Thee and to worship Thee for all that Thou art, and for all that Thou dost daily reveal Thyself to be. Fix our minds and our hearts upon Thyself, and may there be that in the study of Thy Word in this hour that shall cause us to grow in Thy truth, that we may surely bring forth fruit unto Thee. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are studying in the seventh chapter of Romans and come to that text in the fourth verse, which says, in order that we may bring forth fruit unto God. Fruit. I, I was born in California, a country of fruit. In that little valley in California where I passed my boyhood, it was a common sight to see tens of thousands of acres of blossoms in the springtime and to look on the vast and abundant harvest of the autumn. Without being conscious of the impression that was being made on me, I beheld the golden flow of fruit, and the glory of the harvest became a part of my being. I still have a sense of solid satisfaction 
when I think of the thousands of square yards of apricots drying in the sun, of the freight loads of strawberries going off to market, of the hundreds of trainloads of apples that flowed through the little town. Fruit. It was the life of our community. I, like many of the boys in my town, spent many summer days cutting pits out of apricots, and I earned a great deal of money for a boy in making thousands of apple boxes each season. It was thus that we spent our autumn Saturdays. Fruit. The heavy black soil was clean and well cultivated. The orchards stretched away for miles. And for me, the North Star will always shine over a mountain peak, Loma Prieta, ten or fifteen miles away from my home, with orchards stretching all the way to the foothills. Whether the wind blew from Del Monte by the sea or from the fruited hills, the air was always redolent with the fragrance of the blossoms, the fruit, or the black earth, resting for its winter moment before springing into fruitfulness again. This is the atmosphere of the Bible. The winds of God blow thus for the lives of his children. One of the most important purposes of redemption is that we might bring forth fruit unto God. And that is our text, that we might bring forth fruit unto God. We were transplanted out of death and rooted and grounded in his love so that we might bring forth fruit. Fruit is the expression of life. And in the word of God, fruit is indicative of both converts, character, and conduct. When the Lord said, By their fruits ye shall know them, he was not speaking primarily of the conduct of the men of his day, for there was much in their conduct that was exemplary. You cannot know a religious teacher today by his conduct, but by his converts. The kindness and gentleness of the Dawiites do not prove that the earth is flat. Goodness, pacifism, kindness, gentleness, and similar acts of conduct may be counterfeits in the eyes of God. Some of the passages in the Bible on the subject of fruitfulness overlap and teach more than one of these phases of fruitage. There may be verses which speak of only one of the three, or that speak of all of them. Converts, character, and conduct. All of these are fruits, and can identify the tree on which they are grown. This is why our Lord said, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by its fruit. Now let us look first at the idea of converts as being the fruit of a life. We, all of us, leave the impress of our being on those with whom we come in contact. Some leave children, some leave followers, some leave institutions. These all reveal something about their antecedents. In Chicago a long generation ago, there were two famous people who started to work in projects devoted to the well-being of man. By the providence of God, the two works which came out of the lives of these people were and are not far removed from each other. The one was the work of Dwight L. Moody, which lasts today in the Moody Church and the Moody Bible Institute. The other was the work of Jane Addams, which lasts in the social center Hull House. The work of Moody was founded on the fundamental principle of man's complete ruin in sin 
and God's perfect remedy in Christ. Men were taught that they were lost souls and had to be born again through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. This transforming gospel began to work in hundreds of homes. The men of these homes began to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Soon they moved to better suburbs and established better homes. The church flourished while the institute began to train young people who took their journey across the face of the world, establishing mission schools, hospitals, and churches, translating the word of God into native tongues, and leaving a fruit that is multiplied a thousandfold and still being transplanted into ever new ground the world over. The other institution was founded on the questionable principle of man's inherent capacities. If his environment could be changed, if his economic status could be lifted, then his character, they thought, would develop naturally. They forgot, perhaps, that Adam and Eve were in a perfect environment in the Garden of Eden, and that did not keep them from sinning. But that institution still stands today in the midst of a spiritual slum. And in the great days of the bootlegger, it was discovered that certain gangs had found it a good place to meet to come to their decisions. There is no record that I know of of any life that was ever transformed through the work of a social service center. Moral rearmament can never be a substitute for the new birth. Now, the great chapter in the Bible that deals with fruit-bearing is our Lord's discourse on the vine and the branches, spoken on the night before his crucifixion. It, I think, deals with all phases of fruitage, of converts, of character, and of conduct. The disciples had risen from the table and left the upper room. The feet of the disciples had been washed as a sign of their cleansing from daily sin. And the Lord had refused to wash their head and hands, saying that they were already clean, a symbol of the fact that they were already alive in Christ, possessing eternal life. The communion feast had been eaten. They were on their way to the Mount of Olives. Perhaps it was a great vine and its branches on one of the walls along the way that brought the subject to their eyes. In countries where grapes are trained to grow in espalier along the walls, it is not infrequent to find a vine with a single root a foot or more in diameter and great branches that will spread out as much as a hundred feet from the central root. These great branches are not really branches, but together with the root are called the vine, while smaller branches are truly named branches. It was of such a great plant that the Lord said, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman, the vineyard keeper. As we look at the whole parable, it will be seen that there is a progression in the teaching which fully explains our text in Romans. For we're studying a text that says that the purpose of our salvation and union with Christ is in order that we may bring forth fruit unto God. And here in John 15, in verse 2, it says there's to be fruit. And in the same verse, it says there's to be more fruit. And in the sixth verse, it says much fruit. And in the 16th verse, fruit that remains. There is the progression. Fruit, more fruit, much fruit, fruit that remains. The principles and methods of fruit bearing are now set forth by our Lord in this wonderful story. The passage has been twisted out of context and distorted horribly by some. But if certain factors are held in mind, there will be no difficulty. For example, some have thought that the casting forth of some branches and their burning was teaching the possibility of a soul 
being cut out of the body of Christ and sent to hell. Now, besides denying all of the Bible doctrine of justification, such an explanation is a distortion of all of the rules of biblical exposition. To lay hold of the true meaning, which can be found by a glance at the whole of the passage, is the best way to avoid any false interpretation. After noting that he himself was the vine and that the father was the vineyard keeper, the Lord continued, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, or lifteth up. For the Greek word for taketh away is aero. It does not mean that the branch is cut off, but that it is lifted up, taken away from the ground, and given a chance to get the light and the warmth of the sun, and to be freed from weeds, and to be out of the dirt. The same word is used in such phrases as Jesus lifted up his eyes. They were not removed from their sockets any more than the branch was taken away from the vine. We know from practical experience also and from the rest of the Bible that a soul is not removed from Christ because of a lack of fruit bearing. Else, there would be few professing Christians who could be saved. We must see that the branches are stated by Christ to be in me, every branch in me. And we know that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. We cannot conceive that the Lord Jesus Christ would go through eternity minus a hand or with a finger cut off. If we saw him thus, we might say, Lord, we never read anything in the Bible about these wounds. What is this? And he would have to answer, well, these are some Christians that got away from me. I didn't have the power to hold them. And merely to state the case shows how ridiculous is the doctrine that believes that men may be in Christ and then cut out of him. Christ is not going to be maimed. He said it in his final prayer that all that the Father giveth to me shall come to me. And then he stated, Father, I thank thee that I have kept all that thou hast given me. Now, secondly, we are told that every branch which bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bring forth more fruit. We're all aware of the pruning process by which the Lord works in the lives of his children, correcting us, chastening us, forming Christ in us. Following this, the Lord announces that the disciples to whom he was speaking, the eleven, since Judas was not with them then, the eleven were regenerated men. He says in verse 3, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. This is the verse which is balanced in Peter's epistle with the statement, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. This is a further proof that the passage is not talking about conditions of salvation, but about conditions of fruit bearing. The Lord then continued, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. Now, this is a magnificent expansion of our text in Romans. For as we have seen, these chapters of Paul's greatest epistle are setting forth our oneness with Christ and our marriage to him in order that we might bring forth fruit unto God. We are thus to abide in him. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He says in verse 5, He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Oh, how important it is that we understand this principle. So many Christians seem to read the text as though the Lord had said, Without me you can't do very much. 
and then they cling to the, their little percentage which they think they can do, and thus spoil all possibilities of true fruit-bearing for the Lord. He will never mix his power with ours. If we seek to work in the energy of the flesh, we may be sure that he will not give even a mite of the power of his spirit. But it is when we are reduced to our own absolute nothingness that he can come in with all the fullness of his power. Paul learned this the hard way, and it was in reaction against a thorn in the flesh. What it was we do not know, that Paul was reduced to the place where the Lord could speak, saying, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. To this Paul was able to answer, Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest on me. Now, following this statement that without him we could do nothing, the Lord spoke the verse which has caused so much difficulty to so many people. For we read in verse 6, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, if this means that failing to abide in Christ leads to eternal rejection, and that a Christian who does not bear fruit is cast into the lake of fire and lost, then the Bible is filled with such utter confusion that there is never any means of knowing what it could really mean. But if we take it exactly as it says, and no more, then we shall understand that there's no possible reference here to loss of salvation, but only to the loss of usefulness in the present life and of reward in the future. The man who is a true believer and who does not abide in Christ is not cast forth as a son. He is cast forth as a branch. We have scores of instances in the Bible where men failed to abide in Christ and thereby ceased their usefulness and their fruitfulness and thereby lost the joy that accompanies dwelling in him. We have no instances, however, where a prodigal son is refused the father's house. There is an illustration of being cast forth as a branch in one of the letters to the seven churches of Asia. To the messenger of the church of Ephesus was written, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Now I've seen this happen to both congregations and individuals, and from history I know that it has happened at times to entire denominations and nations. God is constantly at this work of the vineyard keeper. We see zealous orthodox churches become cold and humanistic and lose their witness. We see congregations turn from a place of power to a place of emptiness through having chosen false doctrine or worldly conformity or some other alien path. And we see individuals who, though saved, have made shipwreck of their faith and are cast away from the place of reward, running without receiving the prize. And we also see God lifting up new churches, new denominations through history, new congregations, new individuals to take the place of those whose lampstand has been removed. The fire into which these branches are cast is not the fire of hell or of eternal punishment. Such a fire of punishment exists, but it is not for members of the body. It is not for branches. It is not for the Lord's bride. It is not 
for those who are joined to him as branches to the vine. The fire into which the branches are cast is described in the first epistle of the Corinthians. For there in chapter 3, we read the groundwork of the explanation for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, it's evident that any man who has not been born again cannot be thought of as being on the foundation. Only a believer is on the foundation. Therefore, when the next verse says, Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, it is written to believers only. No others are building on Christ. Now, having established this, we read the passage with ease. Now, if any born-again man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work, every born-again man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. That is the day of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to judge those who are his redeemed own. This day is frequently mentioned in the scriptures. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day. Or he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Or he that hath begun a good work in you will keep on perfecting it until the day of Jesus Christ. At that day, our passage in Corinthians tells us, every believer's work shall be made manifest because it shall be revealed by fire, the symbol of trial and testing. And the fire shall try every man's work, every born-again man's work, of what sort it is. Certainly there is no reference here to any fire of suffering for a Christian suffering after death in order to pay for his own sin. Such a doctrine is alien to biblical Christianity. The text now continues by dividing believers into two groups. Those who have fulfilled the command of Christ to abide in him and bring forth fruit, and those who have not fulfilled the command of Christ, who have not remained abiding in him, and who have not brought forth fruit. It is the latter of these two groups which is described in the passage in John's Gospel. The man who is cast forth as a branch and thrust into the fire. Listen to the conclusion of the epistle. If any man's work, any born-again man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive, in addition to salvation, a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Surely this last verse is the full explanation of our Lord's words. If a man be a born-again man, abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into fire, and they are burned. He has suffered loss of his reward, his works are burned in the fire, in the fire of the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming. And of him it is written that he is saved, but that he is saved so as by fire. We should note also in this passage in John that the personal pronoun is changed when we come to this verse. The first five verses are you, you, if you abide in me, you are branches, you, you. But suddenly it comes to this verse, if a man abide not in me, as though the Lord Jesus were saying to the 11 disciples, this is possible for some, but it is not going to be possible for you. I once had a small flowering tree planted in my garden. On one of its small branches was a wooden tag attached to the branch by a tiny wire. 
The branch grew, and the wire began to cut into the branch. I saw that the leaves were not flourishing like those of other branches. I removed the wire, and in a few days the life was flowing to such an extent that the branch was flowering. Soon the very marks of the wire disappeared. There are some of you today who may be in danger of withering because of the constrictions of sin. If you will return to the abiding place which is Christ, you shall discover that he will begin to work through you and that once more you shall demonstrate that abiding in Christ is the sure condition of fruitfulness. And our God and Father, we pray thee to use that in this hour which has been set forth. If there be any who have not been born again, give them restlessness. Any Christians out of thy will, bring them back to the place of abiding. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power now, till the Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. We were transplanted out of sin and death to be rooted and grounded in God's love and grace. He has saved us unto good works, that we may bear an abundance of spiritual fruit for His glory. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled Fruit Unto God. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Request Fruit Unto God or simply ask for message number R7-7. We'd also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled The Cost of Discipleship. Although salvation is a free gift of God, it does not come cheaply. It costs Jesus His life to redeem us, and it will cost us something if we are serious about submitting to His Lordship. This free booklet will show you that as pilgrims in this life, we must count the cost of discipleship. Learn to travel light and realize that following Jesus radically changes our relationships. Discipleship is demanding, but the Lord promises that He is always with you. Ask for your free copy of The Cost of Discipleship when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support or further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call us toll-free, 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.